Hello, and welcome to Karen's Medical Corner. I'm Karen O'Day. I'm a certified nurse midwife, certified family nurse practitioner, owner and operator of Evercare Family Practice, where my specialty is family health care, women's health, bioidentical hormone replacement for men and women, aesthetics, and I do have specialty training for balance disturbance. I'd like to thank you for joining me today for the fourth podcast on vertigo, uh, where I would like to discuss treatment options. So starting with some things uh, that cause vertigo that are fairly simple to treat would be the first uh, being cerumen impaction. So if a patient has cerumen impaction and they have a sudden onset of vertigo, removing that cerumen oftentimes will relieve the vertigo almost instantaneously. The difficult part is how cerumen is removed. So if there is a cerumen impaction and a patient is having vertigo, they should not have water put into their ears. It should be removed either with instrumentation or a specialty suction device. If the cerumen is too hard to be removed, the patient should be instructed to use mineral oil, 10 to 12 drops, in the affected ear. And uh, sometimes it has to be for up to two weeks, but we try to make it as quick as possible to relieve the vertigo. And once that cerumen is soft, the cerumen can be removed, and again, the vertigo is usually resolved if that is the issue with the vertigo. In order to prevent recurrence in the future or help prevent recurrence in the future, patients are often instructed that they can use two to three drops of mineral oil in each ear two to three times a week to help prevent that cerumen from becoming impacted. Although if they do have a history of cerumen impaction, they can follow up with their provider every three to six months to check and see if the cerumen is building up prior to having an event that causes them to have vertigo. Another common or a fairly common cause of vertigo is otoconia, also known as BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. That's where people will have the um, crystals detach and get uh, into, and become dislodged into the semicircular canal. That, if that is the diagnosis, it is fairly easily remedied with um, what's called Epley maneuver. Now, I don't do Epley maneuver in the office. I use a modified Epley because true Epley, the patient has to have their head hanging back over the table, and that can cause dissection of the vertebral artery, which can be life-threatening. And since many times women and men who are over the age of 65 will have this issue occur, uh, modified Epley's is much safer. Now, people can do modified Epley's at home. They can look up online uh, instructions on how to do this. There's also a treatment, several treatments uh, by different um, individuals. One is called Samant. It's the same, basically not exactly the same, but they all involve uh, head movements that are used to help move those crystals through the semicircular canals. If BPV is not treated, it will usually resolve spontaneously in a few days to weeks. However, recurrence can be fairly common. So that's why modified Epley's, if it is um, BPPV, will usually resolve the symptoms fairly quickly, most of the time before the patient leaves the office. So how do people keep from getting these crystals dislodging in the, into the semicircular canals? One is to keep the uh, electrolyte balance at a steady state. So dehydration can affect the crystals in the um, inner ear, and that can cause problems with uh, the 
symptoms recurring. Medications sometimes can be used for a short term uh, if patients are having difficulty with this and uh, with BPPV until they can get in to be treated. Physical therapy is also very helpful for treatment of BPPV. Uh, vestibular rehabilitation and teaching the patients on how to do these positionings uh, if they have recurrence can help substantially. Sometimes if nothing is working and patients are just having recurrence of symptoms and it is due to um, the crystals becoming uh, dislodged, then surgical procedures can be done that actually block the um, exiting part of the inner ear for the fluid, although that is, I don't, I don't know of any of my patients that have ever had that done or any patients that have, but I know it is a treatment option that is available. Um, ototoxic drugs, we know there are drugs that can cause uh, hearing loss. And that can be a real dilemma because many of these drugs are life-saving drugs, such as chemotherapeutic agents or different types of antibiotics. So, if possible, limiting treatment using the medications only once a day can be helpful. And then also doing blood draws to monitor the levels in a patient's system to make sure, such as with gentamicin, that they're not getting too much of the medication. However, the chemotherapeutic agents, you have to take the risk versus the benefit, and these medicines are really effective at treating cancer, but they can cause um, ototoxicity and vertigo to occur. Um, serial audiograms can also be helpful in determining if a patient is starting to have a problem with hearing loss that could affect uh, their balance. However, again, sometimes when people are receiving ototoxic drugs, their hearing doesn't go down for sometimes months after the treatment is over. But it's very important to get a baseline hearing test prior to starting these medications. A hearing test doesn't take very long to do, 10 to 20 minutes, and can give really uh, valuable information for treatment moving forward. Also, uh, genetic screenings can be done to see if there is a predisposition for there being a problem with certain medications prior to them being administered. A very common cause of vertigo can be labyrinthitis or vestibular neuritis. That is one that we see in clinic quite frequently. And there are good treatment options for this. Uh, first, you would need to have an audiogram to determine uh, and, and an evaluation to determine if this is the actual cause of the vertigo. Once that's established, systemic glucocorticoids, which is um, prednisone or methylprednisone given orally for a period of time with an antiviral such as acyclovir or valcyclovir, uh, is the standard treatment for uh, labyrinthitis, uh, which is also known as vestibular neuritis. Also treating a person, person's symptoms, so uh, using drugs that help with nausea and vomiting. Medications such as antihistamines can sometimes help if they're also having some allergy symptoms. And then uh, drugs known as anticholinergic medications can also help. Um, vestibular rehabilitation, again with physical therapy, is a very good form of treatment uh, to help with symptom relief with labyrinthitis until the um, 
cause of the problem is being treated. Most of the time, the reason that we give antivirals is that there will be a virus that causes this to occur, but not always. It can, all, it can be sometimes that we never find out why it happened, it just did. And then um, it's also important to note that even without treatment, the labyrinthitis will usually resolve on its own. And with treatment, it can help improve symptoms more quickly, but there can be some nonspecific vertigo and a little bit of residual imbalance that occurs uh, and may persist for months. So um, a lot of times, even with treatment, patients will still have symptoms, which is why physical therapy is so important. Migraines, if, if somebody is having vertiginous migraines, treating the migraines can be really helpful. So there's uh, many medications that can be used for suppression of migraine headaches. Uh, one thing that I find is can be helpful for my patients in conjunction with this is acupuncture or acupressure that can help to treat migraines and then avoidance. So environmental dietary and lifestyle modifications to help keep migraines at a minimum, such as avoiding foods that have MSG, avoiding dehydration, trying to get uh, enough sleep at night, and avoiding excessively stressful situations. The last two can be very difficult, but patients can work at it. Meditation sometimes can help as well. Uh, there are also uh, medications that can be used after a migraine starts. That is usually not super effective at treating the vertiginous or vertigo portion of a migraine headache. Alcoholism can be another cause of vertigo, and alcoholism is a whole different uh, beast in and of itself because people who are having difficulty with the disease of alcoholism can't just stop drinking. So um, talking to a healthcare professional regarding Treatment options for alcoholism is very important because vertigo, balance disturbance, um, cerebral ataxia, which is um, a change in the gait, increases risks of falls. Those are, that's all associated with alcoholism and is very important to limit alcohol intake but to do it safely because someone who just stops alcohol immediately, uh, if they are consuming a large quantity of alcohol daily, it can be life-threatening for them. Lyme disease is another cause of alcohol, uh, of, uh, of um, vertigo. And with Lyme disease, that can usually be treated in a PCP's office, tertiary Lyme disease. It takes a little bit longer treatment option, uh, treatment to uh, treat the problem. And oftentimes if it has been a substantial amount of time since the person had Lyme disease and in developing the symptoms, if there's a lot of damage, they may need to be referred to neurology for evaluation. And then other reasons that we would do referrals to uh, neurology for treatment of vertigo would be for uh, if the diagnosis happens to be a tumor or Parkinson's or if the person has had a stroke. Things that can be done by the primary care, however, can be limiting risk factors for recurrence of stroke, limiting the risk factors that are causing the vascular disease, such as treating the high blood pressure, stopping smoking, uh, things that increase resistance 
uh, of the vessels. So that can be very helpful. And uh, obviously with tumors, most of the time those are treated surgically. Sometimes they'll do some non-surgical interventions like radiation prior to doing surgery, depending on size of the tumor. But those would all be reasons that a patient would want to seek uh, evaluation by neurology as soon as possible. So Meniere's disease, that's the big one that so many of my patients are diagnosed with by their PCP prior to coming in, which may or may not be the diagnosis. Most of the time it is not the diagnosis. BPPV, the benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, is the other one that patients are often diagnosed with prior to seeing them. And oftentimes that's not what it is. A lot of times that is what it is. Again, that's a fairly easy treatment. But Meniere's disease is really difficult to treat. And as I mentioned in my first podcast, I have a diagnosis of Meniere's disease and I have had placed an endolymphatic shunt after multiple uh, failed treatments, multiple uh, providers that I saw, I was finally able to get a treatment that worked for me. So one of the number one medications that people are given uh, a lot of times when they're diagnosed with Meniere's without having a specialty workup is meclizine. Meclizine should not be given for Meniere's disease. It is not indicated. It is for motion sickness. It is an antihistamine. It's for nausea, vomiting, and dizziness due to motion sickness. It is not an indicated drug for Meniere's disease and it will not work. The reason it's given a lot of times to patients who have vertigo is because this is an what's it's a histamine blocker. It's an H1 blocker and what it effectively does is put people to sleep. So providers will give that medication, hoping that the patient will sleep off their vertigo, wake up, and feel better. But this is not an appropriate treatment option. Other, another uh, uh, treatment option that I've seen done not super frequently, but occasionally is positive pulse pressure uh, generator. That should not be done. Changing the pressure in the middle and inner ear with positive pulse pressure is something that uh, can be dangerous it can, it can make the symptoms worse. It is not going to work for Meniere's disease. So actual Meniere's disease is where is also called endolymphatic high drops, and it is caused by abnormal fluctuations in the endolymph fluid, which is contained in the inner ear. It's that endolymph fluid that also can get the crystals that are dislodged that cause BPPV, but this is a fluctuation in the fluid. Uh, and it's most common in women age 20 to 40. It affects about 10 to 150 people per 100,000. Usually it's unilateral, meaning it only affects one side or the other side, but they're finding that in 10 to 50% of patients, it can become bilateral. Now that's a huge range. 10 to 50% is a gigantic range. And it's because they just don't know a lot about Meniere's disease. There's not a lot of data. There's not a lot of large studies that have been done. Um, it, and Meniere's can only truly be diagnosed po post-mortem. So that's after a patient has passed with analysis of the temporal bone. So we can do a lot of testing we can get a good idea if it's Meniere's, and there are treatment options that can definitely help with Meniere's disease, but it's very difficult just due to lack of adequate and accurate data. So 
Some of the treatments that can be used, they've tried using vasodilators, which for some people can be very effective, like beta histine. That's a medication that's prescribed that can sometimes help with um, Meniere's. Diuretics have been a bit of a tried and true medication for Meniere's for decades. I was um, put on them initially. They did not work. I had horrible side effects, but medications like Lasix and hydrochlorothiazide and uh, triamterine, those are medications that are often used. They do have side effects with um, Lasix. You have to monitor blood work for potassium levels and oftentimes patients have to take potassium as well. Um, other medications that are used, now this does not treat Meniere's, but because Meniere's can cause really severe vomiting, uh, anti-emetics, so medications for vomiting are often used like Phenergan, which again puts people to sleep, so sometimes they'll sleep off the episode, or Zofran. Zofran has less uh, side effects. It, it most of the time does not make patients sleepy. One of the big treatments for Meniere's disease, and this is regardless of what other treatments have been done, are environmental dietary and lifestyle modifications. So those are super important for treating Meniere's disease all the time. So low sodium diet, we know that, in, that high sodium diets can make symptoms worse. Uh, stopping all alcohol consumption, stopping caffeine consumption, avoiding MSG, really increasing uh, water intake. And then one for me, and, and I've had several patients, this is not in the literature, but I've had several patients that have found that this helped as well, is limiting milk products. And for some reason, uh, prior to my surgery, milk products would really set off a vertiginous episode. And then obviously if a person's smoking, they need to stop smoking. That is a really significant factor in vertigo and also smoking is really harmful for the middle ear as well as the inner ear and the central nervous system as well as significant other body organs I'm just focusing on the vestibular system at this point but stopping smoking is really important and then trying to decrease stress because increase in stress can set off a vertiginous episode like that it can you can go from being fine to on the floor vomiting in a matter of seconds Increasing sleep, so trying to get eight hours of sleep at night, which can be difficult, but if people get less than six hours of sleep, they are um, increasing their chances of having vertigo in relation to Meniere's disease. And then treating allergies. There have been several studies that have come out showing an increase in correlation of people with untreated allergies in not only exacerbating their symptoms of Meniere's disease, but actually putting them at increased risk for developing Meniere's disease, which uh, I thought was uh, very interesting. Uh, allergy treatment, you can treat symptoms with antihistamines, with uh, leukotriene blockers. The, the, to me, uh, one of the best treatment options for allergies is to actually treat the allergies through avoidance of allergens and also through allergy immunotherapy, uh, which is known sometimes as allergy shots. Uh, vestibular rehabilitation if, can be useful, but not when somebody's in an active phase of Meniere's. If somebody is in an active phase of Meniere's and they are sent to vestibular rehab, it is going to make their symptoms substantially worse. Vestibular rehab works 
better when a person is not having active symptoms of Meniere's disease. Uh, steroids can sometimes be used to treat Meniere's either systemically or injected into the middle ear. This is something that is an anti-inflammatory. It has been shown to work and there are ear, nose, and throat providers that find it to be very effective. You can do destructive therapy as well. Those were offered to me and I chose not to have destructive therapy in the event that they ever came up with actual adequate data on, on treating Meniere's. I didn't want to, to completely destroy my hearing and not be able to recover it. So destructive therapy uh, can be injecting gentamicin into the middle ear space. That is also done by ear, nose, and throat. A labyrinthectomy where they're actually removing that structure uh, once it's gone, though, it is gone and the hearing is gone as well, as well as with gentamicin. And then um, doing a vestibular neurectomy where they actually cut the eighth cranial nerve. Again, that is a very permanent treatment that uh, is something that really can't be reversed. What I had done with me after trying all of the medications, after doing all of the environmental dietary lifestyle modifications and nothing was working, I had an endolymphatic shunt placed and that can be placed and you can also uh, do a decompression or both at the same time. The endolymphatic shunt worked well for, for me. It hasn't been shown to be um, super effective about 30% of the time, but I was willing to take the choice. That was a choice I was willing to take because my symptoms were so severe. And it is still being done in some locations, although much less than it used to be just because it's not effective. It is something that is really reserved for people who are not responding to any other forms of treatment. You could have a sacculotomy as well. Again, that's a surgical procedure, which can be effective. It's just hard. Meniere's disease is really difficult because it is so debilitating. But when you look at the the population of people who are getting it per 100,000, there's not a lot of money to be made on developing treatment options or researching it as there are for things that are you know, right on the cutting edge and so many people have issues like say with knee replacements or uh, with um, uh, cardiac research. I mean, that if so many people suffer from that and when you take the small population of people who develop Meniere's disease it's really sad that there's not a lot of research but that's what is available out there and I would encourage anybody who has vertigo one find a provider who is specialized in working you up because uh, many patients will be told well, there's just nothing we can do. And that's absolutely not true. I mean, I've been talking for 22 minutes on things that can be done to help different forms of vertigo. So don't give up. Average uh, person sees three to five providers prior uh, before they receive an accurate diagnosis. And there is treatment out there. Uh, this concludes the podcast. I just want to encourage people, if you're having vertigo, don't think you have to live with it. Get a good workup, get it evaluated, get your treatment options, and then follow what you feel like is going to work best for you. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for joining the podcast today. I hope this gives some useful information. And if you have any questions, concerns, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach me on email at evercarefamilypractice at gmail.com. 
at the clinic at 505-780-8301, through our website at www.evercare.com, or on any of the um, podcasts that uh, give you the ability to uh, ask questions and leave comments. So I appreciate everybody listening today. I wish everybody health and happiness and the continued ability to make all of your choices regarding all of your health care issues. And the way to do that is through knowledge. Knowledge is power. So accurate and uh, information, not getting on Dr. Google, but looking at sites that give you accurate information, talking with your health care provider will put you on that right path. Thank you so much.